WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQNA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking about Ron Mars, legendary writer of comics like Green Lantern and Silver Surfer, who's currently promoting a Kickstarter for a World War II graphic novel called Harkins Raiders, which reunites him with his Green Lantern artist and the co-creator of Kyle Rayner, Daryl Banks. Uh, we talk about his current project, his upcoming run on uh, Turok Dinosaur Hunter over at Dynamite. Uh, we ask him about some of his most notable works, and he tells us a great story about his friendship with the late Bernie Wrightson. Also, doggies! Uh, if you're curious about Harkins Raiders, please check out the episode link at wmqcomics.com, and we will get you over to the Kickstarter. Speaking of WMQ Comics, we got a lot going on in this 12th month of the year. Uh, through Christmas Eve, we will be singing the praises of 24 of our favorite comics of the year in no particular order. So check back every day for a new entry in the WMQ Advent Calendar. Uh, so far, we've talked about the X-Men, Batman, Mr. Miracle, Snagglepuss, The Return of Strangers in Paradise, Captain Ginger, and some other great books. Uh, and we should have some guest entries from friends of the site coming in the next week. So all the more reason to check us out at WMQComics.com. Oh, I should also mention we have tweaked our Patreon tiers of support once again, uh, adding something I think is super exciting. From now on, if you pledge at the $2 tier, our own Matt Lazowitz will write one of his weekly bonus reading columns around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Uh, Want to know what the four best stories about Forearm from the Mutant Liberation Front are? Uh, curious about the work of Jeff Lemire but don't know where to start? Uh, looking for four comics about Hanukkah? Uh, subscribe at this level and we will tell you. Uh, but for now, here are me and Matt and Ron. So you've got a, a Kickstarter going on right now for a World War II graphic novel called uh, Harkins Raiders. So tell us a little bit about it. Well, it's um, first and foremost, it's my you know it's my chance to work with Daryl Banks again, uh, my you know co-conspirator on Green Lantern for seven years. So um, Daryl and I have done some some bits and pieces here and there over the years um, after Green Lantern and. Um, and we actually have a different, uh, sort of still secret project we're working on, but this one, uh, this one is kind of on the front burner at the moment. So, um, it's a, it's a world war two story in the vein of maybe Sergeant rock or the dirty dozen or something like that, where it's, yeah, it's a, it's a world war two story, you know, people die. It's not a, it's not a feel good story. Um, but it's not. Uh, it's not quite the the blood and guts of Saving Private Ryan. We're we're telling an adventure story set in World War II, um, rather than uh, rather than you know trying to examine you know why we're why we're a terrible species and we fight each other. Uh, what what made this the the project that kind of brought you and Daryl back together? Were you guys looking for something, or or you know you just happened to both be free at the same time? Well, it just it just sort of uh, it just sort of rolled around that um, the the guy who originally had the the idea for Harkins Raiders is a guy named Alan Cordry who um, who has dabbled in comics previously. He has a small press uh, publication outfit called Van Breed Productions, um, <clears throat> and uh, Daryl and I had both done you know different bits and pieces for him. And Alan, who is a, is actually an Army vet, uh, came to me and said. Hey, I've got this story that I want to tell, and I frankly don't think I'm an experienced enough writer to tell it. Would you be willing to? Would you be willing to write it? I'll give you my thoughts on the story, and then you kind of jump in and make it your own. Um, so he told me the story. I liked it. Um, I like doing period pieces anyway, and 
not long after he said, well, what do you think about getting Daryl to draw it? And that was obviously that obviously sealed the deal. It was um, kind of a no brainer at that point to be able to work with Daryl again. And, you know, we're obviously uh, a number of years beyond uh, our Green Lantern partnership. So hopefully we've both gotten a little bit better at our jobs in the meantime. And um, I think this is actually the first uh, the first project that Daryl is drawing uh, almost exclusively digitally. Hmm. Um, you know, World War II is, has generated so much amazing fiction across mediums, you know, you, that you don't see as much, uh, you know, with say Korea, Desert Storm, or even more modern conflicts. You know, you kind of get that. You know, obviously we've been in sort of a, a I guess, permanent war state since 2001. And you get those, you know, immediate things like Zero Dark Thirty or The Hurt Locker, but that goes away after a couple of years. Um, besides this project, because obviously you're you're involved with it, what World War II fiction, uh, you know, regardless of medium, is, is kind of your uh, your jam, so to speak? Um, you know, I, like I said, I'm a, I'm a history buff. I like, um, I like period stories. So, if it's you know if it's set in the past, I'm I'm likely to read it and or see it anyway. Um, but you know, obviously, some of the some of the classic World War II films, um, you know, The Longest Day, Bridge Too Far, um, right up to you know right up to stuff like uh, Fury and, and certainly Saving Private Ryan, um, even Inglorious Bastards, as as you know, sort of a tongue in cheek take as that is, um, I, I really like them all. So the, the chance to, to play in that sandbox a bit was, um, was very attractive. I've written a few World War II era stories here and there, um, but this was, this was really a chance to, um, to, to dig into it, tell, you know, tell an adventure story that obviously we're making up, but it's certainly based in, uh, based in and around um, factual stuff. The, the, um, the team of... of um, the team of operatives, for lack of a better word, that we're um, that we're using in this um, uh, in this story is based on uh, the SOE, which is the um, uh, I'm going to screw this up. The Strategic Operations Executive, which was a um, an organization that Churchill actually uh, uh, lobbied for and, and was put together by the British in 1940. And they were the, you know, they were the spies. They were the espionage guys and the demolition guys that went behind enemy lines and actually, um, actually did this stuff. So um, we're, you know, we're obviously making up a story, but the everything, everything we're basing it on is is actual. Everything, all the, uh, uh, all the situations are are, you know, pretty accurate to what was going on at the time. Am I mixing them up, or were they the, um, what is it, the ungentlemanly warfare was that the ministry of ungentlemanly warfare <laughs> that is exactly those guys um, <laughs> they were they were also called the baker street irregulars because the office was on baker street in london um so yeah the the, the exploits that these guys uh, and women too um undertook um really really read like made-up adventure stories they um they they got up to some uh pretty heroic stuff um, where where are you in the process of, of you know kind of getting the book together? Um, the book is written. Uh, it's been written a while. Um, Daryl is, I believe, more than halfway through the pages right now. Um, 
and um, I believe we're about halfway colored as well. So covers are done more than half. Of, the whole book's written more than half of it's drawn. And um, if we hit our stretch goal, we've got an eight page uh, backup story that uh, Sean Isaacs, who is currently drawing Avengers, uh, is going to draw. And that story is written as well. Uh, is this is this your first foray into uh, the the Kickstarter model? Well, it's the first one that's got my name on it, um, but it's not the first one that I've been involved in because um, we're publishing this through Ominous Press, which is um, which is the company that I'm a part owner of, mm-hmm. and we've done a number of successful Kickstarters already. Um, <clears throat> I did a graphic novel with um, Paul Harding and Matthew Dow Smith called Beast of the Black Hand. Um, and Harkins Raiders is going to be in the same hardcover oversized format as that. Um, we've done art books with Bart Sears and Daryl Banks. Uh, well, uh, Daryl Banks coming up, obviously Bart Sears, Andy Smith, Graham Nolan, Jim Starlin. Um, we did Bart's how to draw book. Uh, so we've, we've had a number of projects that we've, that we've run through Kickstarter now and they've all been successfully funded. Um, and there's, you know, the Kickstarter is sort of, it's half art and half science. Uh, and you learn, you learn a little bit more each time you do one of them. Um, there's a real, um, there's a real formula for doing it well. Um, and I think hopefully we're, we're honing that a little bit more each time we do one of these things. Um, you know, I think that kind of segues perfectly into, you know, my next question, uh, you know, you know, obviously this is a publishing model that is becoming more and more popular with comics, uh, you know, and it's also, you know, in a way it's kind of turning creators into uh, accountants. You know, do you kind of feel like you've got the balance in hand in terms of, you know, the costs of printing, shipping, you know, but also kind of offering those rewards that will entice backers? Well, I'll tell you, I think if I was, if I think if I had to handle this completely solo, so you know, I really have to say that thankfully we're doing this through Ominous Press and we have the the the, the backing and the know-how and the infrastructure of Ominous Press behind us. Um, I think doing a Kickstarter completely solo um, and then fulfilling it completely solo or with just a couple people is a is is really a lot to bite off. Um, so we've done a number of successful Kickstarters, but we have people that are, you know, people that help with the, the actual Kickstarter listing and the updates every day and the, um, the fulfillment process, you know, getting everything shipped and packed and printed. It's a, you know, you're, you are very much your own publisher. Um, so it's, it's a lot. Um, I don't know that, I don't know that anybody, really handles these things well, completely solo. Um, so we have, um, we have an office staff, we have people to, uh, people to help with the, the printing process and the shipping of everything to, to the offices and then getting that all unpacked and getting the, it boxed up. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty monumental task, but the, the, the obvious reward of it is, is, you know, you're cutting out the middleman for the most part. You're cutting out the this, the distributor. You're cutting out the, um, at least for now, you're cutting out the, the retail aspect of it. It's just direct from you to the customer. Um, 
and there's a there's a certain kind of elegant beauty to that is you know if you if you do a project that people respond to um you they they they're basically paying your bills to to do your to do your thing there's nobody else looking over your shoulder to to tell you that you know you need a you need, need a guest star from x-men in this issue to boost sales this month mm. um so it's um uh, you know i think it's it's a way to 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 do exactly what you want to do as long as the audience is there to support you uh and and so far the audience has been and we're obviously hugely grateful to um to everybody that that has pledged or or you know spread the word or even taken a look at it um it's uh like you said it's it's becoming more and more prevalent in um in comics and sort of in creative endeavors uh overall um because it you know it allows you to sort of pre-sell what you're what you're making and the audience is there to support you um it's 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 more work but it's more rewarding um, you've mentioned uh, Ominous a couple times, uh, for which you are, uh, yeah, uh, again, part owner, editor-in-chief. Um, the art books that you guys do, um, you've mentioned a few people who have them. Um, you know, Are they all, so far, people that are involved with, with the company? Are there a few others that you guys have, uh, have sought out to you know, collect their, their work? Oh, well, it's, you know, it's, you know, so far it's, uh, look, uh, you know, we started with the Bart Sears art book as a companion to the, um, you know, Brutes and Babes, how to draw stuff of Bart because it just, it just made sense. And Bart is the, you know, chief creative officer of the company. Um, the next one up was Andy Smith, who was our art director. Um, and we were, we did um, a hardcover version of the Demigod uh, series that Andy and I work on. Um, so Bart and Andy were the first two. Um, Jim Starlin's the third one, Graham Nolan's the fourth one, Daryl will be the fifth one. Um, we're working on one with Rick Leonardi right now. Um, so we hope to continue the series and, you know, to bring in as, as many disparate artists as we can. Um, you know, I would be less than truthful if I didn't say that part of this was just, you know, we're all art fans. We all, we all love art books. So we thought, well, why don't we just start a series because virtually everybody in comics has so much stuff that's had that, that hasn't been seen unused pitches, um, private commissions, just piles of artwork that, that generally the public doesn't get to see, um, except maybe, you know, checking out online galleries at, uh, comic art fans or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was an opportunity for us to, um, to gather up some of this stuff and, uh, to offer these these art books as companion pieces to whatever graphic novel or other project we were doing at the time. Um, you know, we, we in fact today we just got back. They they ran the first copies of the Graham Nolan and Jim Starlin art books, so we got we got those make readies today um, to approve, and then they'll they'll do the rest of the run and uh, you know box them up and ship them out. And, and those will be available outside the Kickstarter as well. This isn't a, oh, these were a Kickstarter and now, meh. Oh, sure. Um, obviously, um, Ominous Press has an online uh, has an online presence, and our sister company, which is Sleeping Giant, also has an online presence. So you can um, you can buy any of this stuff once once we have it uh, printed. 
uh, and we have them in stock, you can buy these things uh, right off the website. So uh, uh, although I think on, on the current Harkins Raiders Kickstarter, we have a level that's um, that's a copy of one copy of each of the five art books we've done so far, um, mm -hmm. including Daryl's. So um, w the intention is to just continue um, continue doing this because, um, you know, honestly, it, it's not a question of having enough material to fill the books. It's a question of what we're going to leave out um, on on all of these because everybody that we've we've approached so far has so much material that it's it becomes a a matter of picking and choosing what's actually going to make the book. That's awesome because I somehow missed out on that Graham Nolan one, and I've been a huge fan of his since the detect his detective comics run with chuck dixon so i'm gonna have to track me down one of those um grams is really great we just um like i said we just got the make ready for that and it's it's you know it's look certainly grams has what you would expect in it there's batman stuff there's bane stuff but there's also um there's also a bunch of other things that i had never seen um and i've been you know i've been friends with graham for 20 years um you know just stuff that he had in his files you know, comics, his, his Sunshine State comic strip, um, Phantom Sunday pages, uh, just such a, a diversity of stuff. Um, even even a, like a comic that he produced for the for the Buffalo Bisons AAA baseball team. Uh, you know, there, so there's all sorts of just, you know, just odds and ends stuff in, in all the books. Um, Starlin's has a has a Captain Marvel uh has has a Captain Marvel story. It's not complete, obviously, but um, uh, Shazam, Captain Marvel, DC, Captain Marvel. There's a you know oh. there's a chunk of story pages in there for for a um, for a pitch that never went anywhere. Uh, you know, in full color. There's um, everybody seems to have at least a couple of jobs in their flat files that that just didn't go anywhere. Um, and we're actually you know getting a chance to uh, put those in the books. Uh, that's great. And um, kind of speaking of other people who have published through Ominous, uh, we actually had uh, Stephanie Phillips on the show a few weeks ago. And, uh, she did the uh, Kicking Ice uh, graphic novel through you guys. And, um, you know, great, uh, great person to talk to. We're very uh, kind of happy for her, uh, for, for her successes. So, um, yeah, the, you know, it's, it's Kicking Ice was the same model that we've used on on all of this stuff. Um, it just it's and to a certain extent, we we're trying to um, grab projects that might not find a comfortable fit at a lot of other publishers um, because, you know, you go to other publishers and the immediate um, the immediate thought and it, it's not a criticism. It's just a reality. The immediate thought immediate thought is, well, can we you know, can we turn this into a movie pitch? Mm, um, sure. And, you know, you, you do stuff that's a World War Two story, for instance, that obviously is going to be a fairly pricey um high budget movie to do a to do a uh, a story set in world war ii you you end up um often pitching comics that um that you want to do as comics but you're ultimately pitching them as as a movie property so the publisher can make some money back on it um and the ones that are going to turn into expensive movies sometimes that that forms a barrier to actually investing the money to do the comic. Um, and again, it's, that's not really a criticism. It's just the reality of, of how comics work. It's the reality of, of how expensive, um, it is to produce comics. And, um, 
purely on sort of single issue monthly sales, it takes a while to make that back up uh, for a new property, for something that people aren't familiar with. Uh, so, you know, so having that that backstop of being able to option the movie rights is um, is part of the process now. Uh, so um, hopefully we're sort of looking at, you know, looking at some different projects that might not be the, you know, the immediate um, completely, um, you know, prepackaged movie pitch kind of projects, um, which isn't to say that if somebody wants to make a movie at him, we wouldn't be all for it. Right. You're just you're you're just not, you know, Mark Miller automatically going in with a new image series, which is going to be a Netflix series, you know, every other month that. Uh, <laughs> that yeah. And I mean, and God bless Mark. He's you know, he's incredibly good at what he does and he's you know, what he does is very entertaining. Um, and he's you know, he's kind of a brand brand name at this point. So um, good for him. I actually like Mark a bunch. Um, but yeah, there are there are. Um, there's stuff that, that isn't quite the high pitch, um, you know, what if, what if the Joker was Batman kind of stuff that, um, that immediately resonates. So we're trying to touch on, on some of those things a little bit more. Um, not to say that, you know, the, the, oh my God, this would make a great movie aspect to any of these things. Um, you know, we're not turning our nose up at that stuff either. Certainly. Uh, kind of moving on to uh, some of your other work, you've also got a new Turok series coming out in January from Dynamite. Uh, Turok obviously is one of those characters. He's been around for uh, a long while. Uh, you know, to the extent that you can talk about it, you know, you know, what are some of the things you kind of have uh, planned for the character? Um, well, Dynamite came to me and said, do you want to, you know, do you want to do Turok? And, you know, the, obviously I said yes. And they said, what's your take on it? And I said, my take is a guy who fights dinosaurs. <laughs> and, and they went, okay, let's do that. Um, so uh, I honestly, you know, it, it honestly, I didn't overthink it. Um, there, there are some things that are just um, kind of um, simple and elegant as what they are. So I, you know, I didn't try to make it something that it's not. Uh, so I went back to kind of the roots of it, which is, you know, a Native American warrior and his younger brother stuck in a land where there's a bunch of dinosaurs. Um, so that's very much the core of what we're doing. Um, the setting to begin with is a little different because I started the story in um, 1873, Colorado. So it really starts out as a Western um, with... Turok and his brother Andar being pursued by a uh, a squad of cavalry troops who are uh, who are supposed to grab them up and drag them back to the reservation in Oklahoma. Uh, so I wanted to have something that kind of felt um, felt rooted in the familiar that everybody could kind of immediately understand. Okay, this this is the old West. These are um, these are soldiers basically wiping out an indigenous people. Um, I wanted to have that sense of reality and that sense of familiarity before we actually send you someplace where there's a bunch of dinosaurs running around. So hopefully you kind of invest in the characters and then the readers will be a little bit more accepting of, yeah, there's a T-Rex. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so, you know, 
Dynamite, to their credit, just let me kind of run with it and do what I wanted. Um, and, you know, we're we're a chunk of ways into the issues and I'm I'm having a ball. Um, there's you know, there's there's no lack of dinosaur fighting. Uh, if that's <laughs> what you you know, I think I said in, in another interview, I said, you know, look, we're all you know, we're all 12 years old when it comes to dinosaurs. You're going to get plenty of that. I said, it's not, you know, it's not like anybody shows up to see the Jurassic Park movies for the actors. That's not what you're there for. Um, you know, um, Chris Pratt is a fine and engaging presence. I didn't go see Jurassic World for him. I, I went to see dinosaurs eat some people. Uh, so, so my, you know, my inner 12 year old is, is ultimately being served by, you know, by the Turok stuff. I think was it the old DC comics in the fifties rule that apes or dinosaurs on the cover sold more comics. Oh God. Yeah. Give me a, give me a purple dinosaur and I'll, you know, <clears throat> I will make those books fly off the racks. Um, so I, you know, I, I hope that stuff still holds true. I, you know, if I can figure out a way to get a, a gorilla into, uh, into Turok, I'll do that too. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm having a, I'm having a ball the, the art is by Roberto Castro, who is doing just a bang up job. I think it's the easily the best stuff he's ever done. Um, and it, you know, it's sort of scratches all my, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Robert E. Howard, um, 12 year old itches. So, now you're going to have to bear with me for a little while as I've been a fan of yours for quite a while. And so I've got some uh, more classic work questions to, to throw at you. Lay them on me. Because um, my first Green Lantern comic ever was issue 55, the zero hour crossover where Kyle meets Alan Scott and all of that. So I'm from that kind of lost generation who fondly remembers as their Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, their Flash, Wally West, their Green Arrow, Connor Hawk, poor Connor, who still just he's he's just gone. Um, and even though you know Hal has been back for a while, Kyle still shows up pretty on the regular. Um, and you already talked about you're still working with Daryl, who was the co-creator with you on Kyle. Um, what's it like to have co-created a character with that kind of profile and longevity? Um. You know, I don't know. You're probably asking the wrong guy for that because I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know that I can see the forest for the trees in all this. Um, it's, it's obviously, it's satisfying that, that, you know, we got the response that we did when we introduced Kyle. And it's very satisfying that he's still part of the DCU and still has a, still has a fan base. Um, DC really gave us, um, uh, DC really gave us, uh, a lot of well, DC gave us just enough rope to hang ourselves with Kyle. Um, they really um, let us make up a completely new character, and um, didn't didn't look over our shoulders a whole lot post Emerald Twilight. You know, they had some specifics that they wanted accomplished there, but other than that, they really let us kind of kind of run with um, run with Kyle and and do do as we saw fit. Um, and that's a, that's a huge boon for creators to have that sort of freedom. Um, so it's, it's obviously, it's satisfying, uh, for me to have them still around and to have people 
who um, who come up to me and say that, you know, he's my Green Lantern. I think obviously um, Green Lantern is one of one of very few um, superhero franchises that you sort of get to choose your flavor. And I think it's it's generally the one that you discover at at the right age, that sort of magic 10, 12 years old um, where you plug into something and then it's, you know, and then it's yours for the rest of your life. Like me with, you know, John Carter of Mars or Johnny Quest or something like that, that I discovered at that age and is still a big deal to me. Um, I think the things you discover at that age, and I guess for a lot of people, it was Kyle. Um, it, you know, it's it still, it still holds true. It's still, um, it still resonates. So that's, that's really satisfying. And, and I have to admit that it's kind of cool to see him back in his original costume. Cause I, I always liked it. Yeah. He just popped up in the most recent issue of Titans in that costume. And I was like, Oh, right. He's back looking like he did. That's, that's so cool. And he's such an interesting character because you made him an artist. So many superheroes are, you know, soldiers or, reporters but kyle was an is an artist and that's such a different take and so works with the green lantern ring and the creativity that comes with it well it you know they gave us um they gave us the freedom to to make up the sort of character that that we wanted so so we did that and i and i felt like there was no real sense in um in having sort of Hal Jordan light, if we were, if the idea was to, you know, to move Hal off stage and bring in a different character, let's make sure it's a truly different character. Um, you know, that it's, uh, that it's somebody unlike Hal. And, and for me, um, so many of those DC silver age characters, I think are terrific characters, but they're very much, um, they're very much of that era in which they were created. They're the, those, characters um hal barry allen um carter hall uh ray palmer they're they're all sort of of authority figures and they're all kind of heroic and in hal's case very heroic he's a test pilot um even before they start to be superheroes and um i as a kid read mostly marvel comics i you know i grew up with with Spider-Man and the X-Men and all these heroes that kind of had uh, human flaws and, and feet of clay in a lot of cases. So that's the kind of character that I was drawn to um, as a, as a reader. And it's the kind of character that I'm drawn to as a writer. So um, to, to great extent, um, Kyle is a more Marvel style character than a lot of the, the established DC characters. Um, He's, He's hopefully you. He's you know he. You look in the mirror and you see him, and he has to worry just like Peter Parker does about paying the rent and getting a date and all that stuff. the 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 idea was that um, we wanted you to be as concerned about Kyle out of costume as you were when he was in costume. You, we wanted you involved in his life um, when he was a civilian as well as when he was you know being a hero. It's interesting saying you the you loved those Marvel characters with feet of clay because segueing nicely into my next set of questions, um, your big run on Marvel books, which I also loved and read back in the day, was 
a considerable run on Silver Surfer, who's one of those very grandiose characters. And I, I mean, I remember you doing a lot of that sort of development and making him a little more human. And especially because you were following Jim Starlin and all that, in the Infinity Gauntlet run up that he did, which were these giant cosmic Thanos epic. Um, well, that was from my, that was my first job in comics. Um, my first script ever was a script for Silver Surfer Annual Three, and you know, so I very much learned on the job. I was, you know, I was handed those, I was handed the Surfer as my first regular series, and sort of had to. Obviously, I was, you know, I was shown the ropes by Jim, and he helped me along with my first few scripts and. Um, you know, we, we co-wrote a few issues of Surfer before I took over with issue 51 on a regular basis. Um, but, I, you know, I was it, it was a very different time than it is now where you basically have to work your way up through um, through self-publishing and small press and then smaller publishers and then maybe image aftershock dark horse to, you know, really kind of cut your teeth on on a uh, on your career and then you get a chance at doing marvel and dc stuff um for me i i broke in doing you know doing a marvel monthly book um that just doesn't happen anymore um so so i was very much learning what i was doing while i was doing it um and you know i guess for better or worse they're reprinting a lot of that stuff now because of the infinity gauntlet um so, so some of that stuff is coming back to haunt me, and some of it's okay, and some of it I kind of cringe at. <laughs> uh, you you were in uh, newspapers prior to that, correct? Yeah, my first real job uh, when I was actually still in college was uh, as a newspaper reporter. I was a, um, I was a sports reporter, and then uh, the entertainment editor at a daily newspaper in upstate New York. Um, so. So I, I pretty much never had a job, a, a, like a real job other than writing, unless you, you know, unless you count stocking shelves in a, in a Kmart when I was 16. Um, but I, you know, but I was, I think I was probably 19 when I got, uh, when I started at the newspaper and worked at the newspaper, uh, even through college as a, as a part-time job and then, um, graduated you know, went full time at the newspaper, and uh, I think probably I think my first my first comic stuff came out when I was twenty three or twenty four. So um, <clears throat> I've I've been and I've been doing that ever since. So I, I really haven't like had a had had an I, 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 for the most part I haven't had an honest day's work in my life. <laughs> I, we we talked about you co creating Kyle a minute ago, but. During that run on Surfer, you co-created a whole bunch of characters, or two, uh, Morg and Tyrant and Ganymede and uh, Janice Vell, who is a favorite of mine. Do you have a favorite amongst the, or a particular character you remember fondly co-creating in there? Um, you know, to great extent, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just making up stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, the the the, the sheer um, excitement of of doing it. Um, and the sheer excitement of working for Marvel Comics, and you know, it was just um, sort of this um, sort of this orgy of creativity, I guess, where you just 
I mean, you can't get the ideas out fast enough because you're so um, enamored with what you're doing. Uh, so I, I made up a bunch of stuff. Some of it's still around, some of it's not. Um, but it was ultimately the surfer stuff was really great training for me because um, when I took the book over, I had to I had to start um, start doing tie-in issues with the Infinity Gauntlet stuff. So I very quickly had to um, had to learn how to tell stories between the cracks of other stories and how to play well with others. Um, you know, I look back at it now and feel like that really was my, um, was my proving ground in terms of being able to work within a shared universe and, and, um, particularly the way comics have gone now where there's, there are so many events all the time. Mm. It's, um, you know, it's not always the easiest skill to pick up if you're used to kind of going off and doing your own thing. Sometimes you have to sublimate what you're doing to the for the overall greater good of the story um and that's that's fine that's just that's part of working in a shared universe and and it's part of playing with somebody else's toys uh, you're, you're ultimately playing with the toys that somebody else owns and you have to play with them the way they want you to play with them for the most part Uh, you also wrote a couple of really memorable Star Wars stories, and Star Wars is one of my big fandoms. You did uh, Darth Maul with Jander Sima and uh, the two-part Extinction story from Star Wars Tales with Claudio Castellini. Um, was it really was it a lot of fun to write those you know Sith-centric, big sci-fi action stories? Oh, man, it was the best thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> I saw, you know, again, to go back to that sort of, um, 10 or 12 years old golden age. Um, the, you know, the old joke is what's the golden age of science fiction? And the answer is 12. Um, um, I saw star Wars in the theater, uh, when I was 11 years old and obviously it was a huge life changing experience. You know, I, the sitting in the darkened theater and having that star destroyer, go over my head for what felt like three months uh, to open the movie. It, you know, you really just, it, it was like nothing I had ever seen before. And I immediately fell in love with it. And, and it, seeing that movie at that age is probably one of the reasons that I do what I do. So getting the, the, the opportunity to, to write star Wars uh, in any shape or form was, you know, absolutely a thrill. Um, I had actually, I had actually, when Dark Horse initially got the license, I got a call from um, from my editor offering me the the monthly Star Wars book that they were going to launch, and I had just I had just signed an exclusive contract with DC, uh, like literally a week before. So, um, you know, talk about wanting to you know step out in front of a bus. Uh, <laughs> So, so that opportunity went, went by the wayside, but then, you know, however long the DC contract lasted. And then obviously I was still in touch with dark horse and, and when star Wars tales, um, rolled around, um, I got, I was in a position where I could, I could do, um, I could do the, the lead story in the first issue and it turned into the, to the lead story in issues one and two because Claudio Castellini was was meticulous enough, which is a nice word for slow, <laughs> uh, 
<clears throat> that we had to split up the story over two issues, um, and which was totally the right thing to do because the the art that he turned in on that story was just absolutely gorgeous. Um, so I, you know, I, I loved every bit of Star Wars that I've written. The Darth Maul, Darth Vader. I did a bunch of issues of Empire. Um, you know, other odds and ends. It's it's um, it's very near and dear to my heart, and um, it to great extent was not like work. It was it was just you know being eleven years old again and and playing with my first wave action figures. <laughs> um, as our podcast listeners know, while I love Star Wars, my biggest fandom, my my great pop culture love is Batman, and you've written a bunch of Batman odds and ends over the years but two particular projects uh the first batman aliens and the one shot hidden treasures you worked with bernie wrightson i i think i would be remiss with uh, uh, not asking you about what it was like to work with bernie wrightson because he was just stunning his work is incredible well, uh, you know, Bernie, Bernie was one of my best friends. So, um, it was, it was easy and luxurious and wonderful to work with Bernie, um, because he was my buddy. And for a number of years, he lived a mile and a half down the road for me. Um, you know, I, I, I ultimately got into this business because, uh, I, I met, uh, I met Bernie. I went to Bernie's house to interview him when I was in high school for the high school newspaper. He lived, um, he lived a, a town over from where I grew up in Kingston, New York. Bernie lived in Woodstock. Um, and then when I got into college, I went back and did the same damn interview because I just found him to be such a great guy and so fascinating. I went back, did this, you know, did an interview. He was really happy with the story and we just got to be buddies after that. Um, he, you know, he didn't treat me like a 19 or 20 year old kid. He just treated me like his pal. And we went to went to movies and parties at his house and the, the legendary Halloween parties that that he had. Um, I just got to be part of that that social circle. And that's how I met Jim Starlin and ended up being buddies with Bernie and Jim and, and the whole comics community that was in that area. And so for the you know, in a, in a very real sense, I would not have a comics career if I had never met Bernie. Um because that led to that led to everything else. Um, so being pals with Bernie, we, you know, we found a thing to work on, which was Batman aliens. I think was the first time we actually did something together. And I can remember, um, we were driving back from somewhere maybe it was a convention in the city or something like that. Bernie was driving and we just got kicking around ideas. And, and he said, well, how about, how about Batman aliens? Cause we knew that, that dark horse was doing was doing the aliens comics because they had the they had the license and and we both went man that'd be cool but they'll never let us do it like that's <laughs> that's a crazy idea that's not going to happen um but uh you know Bert, like the next week bernie called dark horse and said hey how about how about we do this and you know shockingly when bernie writes and says he'll draw batman aliens um <laughs> publishers go okay let's do that um, so, so, you know, Dark Horse said, yeah, let's do that. And they got in touch with DC, Denny O'Neill signed off on it. And it was, it was really a, you know, 
you you would think that something like that would be this this you know approvals nightmare between DC and Dark Horse and 20th Century Fox and but but everybody you know everybody just let us tell the story we wanted to tell. I think I think Denny had like one one minor thing he wanted us to change in the pitch, and um, you know we we actually I, th- I remember going into DC with Bernie and we went out to lunch at Denny's favorite Indian place, which is where he took everybody for uh, for lunch, and we had lunch and just you know kind of shot the shit for an hour and a half, and he said, oh yeah that 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 um, Batman aliens thing just you know just change this thing and and it's fine, so you know so. Okay, off we go, and it was you know the whole thing was a, a pleasure from from end to end, and and certainly um, certainly part of it was like I said, Bernie was living a mile and a half down the road from me. Um, I could I could go down to his house, go to the studio in the backyard, and watch him draw pages. Uh, it was you know it was it was really kind of pinch me stuff, and. Um, so that's that's kind of how it all came about. The 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 part that you asked about, like what's it like to work with Bernie Wrightson? Um, you know, I there were there were kind of two Bernies to me because there was my buddy Bernie, and then when I would step back and think about it, I'd go, "That's Bernie fucking Wrightson." <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, you know, and he's he's taking this story that's in my head and it's flowing out of his out of his hand and onto the page. So I really didn't, you know, I didn't think about, I didn't think about the fact that I was working with Bernie Wrights and I just thought about, you know, I was working with my friend Bernie. Um, so, uh, and I, and I think probably that's, that's a good thing because I couldn't really, um, I couldn't really function probably if I thought about the fact that I was actually writing something for Bernie Wrightson. And I had and I had to write something worthy of Bernie Wrightson. Um, so, so you know the whole the whole job was a pleasure. Um, they just let us do what we wanted to do, and Bernie drew the hell out of it. And and I'm sitting at my desk right now, looking up at my wall, and there's a page of Batman fighting a crocodile um, original hanging on my wall. So uh, it's a it's a very nice keepsake from one of my buddies who's not here anymore. That's awesome, um, and the and the hidden treasure story was was a story that you know we wanted to do something together again, and um, so I suggested to Bernie that we do a, a splash page story, so that he could just you know he could just tuck into it and not have to worry about the panel to panel storytelling and just draw the hell out of something. And um, Solomon Grundy seemed like a seemed like a likely um, character for him to do. And, um, I wrote it. I, I remember, um, we called Archie Goodwin and asked if, you know, he was, if he was interested in it. And, um, and he said, sure, come on up to the office and let's talk about it. And I, and I went into Archie's office and I, you know, I think Archie was the best editor who's ever walked the face of the earth in terms of comics. Um, and I always just kind of worshiped and adored him. He's just a great guy. And, um, and, you know, I had to sit in Archie's office and tell him the story, like to tell him that we're going to do splash pages and it was going to be Solomon Grundy about, 
And, you know, you get a little nervous and tongue-tied talking to Archie Goodwin because he's he's the best there is. He's a better writer than you are, and he's a better editor than you are. So you have to, you know, you have to meet that bar. And I got, a, you know, two minutes into describing the story, and he said, ah, you know what, you and you and Bernie know what you're doing. Just, you know, just go ahead and do it. Um, he's like, don't worry about it. I, I hate pitching stories, too. I feel like I'm an idiot uh, when I have to tell my stories to somebody. Um, so he, you know, completely kind of disarmed me and put me at ease. And um, and then uh, took took Bernie a while to to finish the pencils. And then he didn't really have time to ink it because he had moved out to California in the meantime and was working on on film production stuff. So um, so I called Kevin Nolan to see if he would want to ink it. And he jumped at the chance because he like everybody else. He loves Bernie, too. And. Kevin inked the hell out of the pages, and then they sat in a drawer at DC Comics for 15 years. Uh, because in the meantime, uh, Legends of the Dark Knight got canceled, so there was it, the story was kind of an orphan. It was a it was a one issue thing that um, that didn't have any place to get published. And every every year or two, I would get a call from uh, Mark Chiarello, the art director at DC, who. Um, who kind of took the story under his wing after Archie passed away. And he would call me and say, well, we're going to, we're going to print it as a Batman annual. And then it didn't happen. And then we we're going to, they were going to do it as, as um, there was going to be a Bernie centric issue of the solo series that they were doing out there. That was a great series. <clears throat> and then that didn't happen. And then it was going to be just a regular issue of Batman. And then that didn't happen. Um, so eventually you know, I, I got a call from Mark and he said, we're, we're really doing it this time. We're just going to put it out as, as, as its own thing and, and, you know, put Bernie Swamp thing and Batman issue in the back of it. And so that's how the, uh, uh, lost treasure came about. And, you know, it, it honestly, it was kind of cool to have this, this, um, you know, this lost job that, that kind of everybody in the business knew about, because I would, <laughs> I would get emails or phone calls from other pros, every so often saying, Hey, I heard, I heard, you know, you, you wrote this job that is, is rights and splash pages inked by Kevin Nolan. Can I get a copy of that? Um, <laughs> so, you know, so I would have to go down to Kinko's and knock a copy of the damn thing, you know, like, like every six weeks or so, cause somebody else wanted a full size set of copies. Um, but, but now it's out in the world. So everybody, everybody's seen it. One more question from the foggy recesses of time. Um, what was working at CrossGen like? That was a company that I loved so many of their books, and I still have most of that universe, you know, most of the books from that universe. And it's now become this sort of odd little footnote in comic history. But I'd just love to know a little bit about what that whole experience was like. Um the the experience itself was for me i mean everybody's got a different take um if you if you ask mark wade his take it's much different than mine um you know everybody either either got along and got through it well or they didn't for me um i ultimately enjoyed it i i learned more about putting comics together in the 3 years at crossgen than i than i have before or since uh, because we were really responsible for putting our own books out, for um, for for 
for everything. We, we didn't have editors. We, we did the books ourselves. Um, so the whole process from, you know, the beginning of the scripting to, um, to art, color, letters, you know, design titles, uh, everything was respo- was the responsibility of the creative team and, and the design department. So, um, if there was something wrong in those books, it was our fault. So we made damn sure that there wasn't anything wrong. Uh, so creatively, I, I enjoyed it. Um, there were, look, I, I wasn't crazy about the fact that it was sort of this contiguous universe. I thought a lot of the stuff could have just stood on its own just as well. Um, but overall, I enjoyed it. I, you know, I enjoyed the hell out of the books that I did because I was working with my buddies. Um, uh, Brandon Peterson, Bart Sears, Jim Chung, um, and then, you know, Aaron Lepresti, uh, Luke Ross, you know, I worked with so many different people, um, on the issues and ultimately I'm pretty proud of the, the books we produced there. So, so creatively it was, it was pretty great. And, and probably, you know, five years before it's time in terms of, you know, comics breaking big and being, a um, and being a storytelling force in film and, we, to a certain extent, we were just we were just too soon, um, but there was also obviously the you know the business end of it was not as well um, as well run or as well thought out as any of us expected it would be. So um, it was ultimately you know ultimately it, it it didn't end well, but the the time before that uh, the time before everything started to spiral down the drain, um, I really enjoyed myself. Fantastic. Uh, That's real cool. Uh, Ron, as we are uh, wrapping up, uh, first of all, how can people follow you online if you, in fact, wish to be followed? And uh, how can they support Harkins Raiders? Um, well, you can follow me. Uh, I'm generally on Twitter. Uh, it's just at Ron Mars. Um, that's the place to track me down. There's a there's a there's a <clears throat> I, I guess we'll, I'll guess we'll do this part after now that the dogs are- <laughs> we almost we almost got it we almost got it out there uh, i think that's just my wife coming home from shopping uh so they'll have a minute of of being all twitchy and then we'll do it again so sorry about that that my my dogs are the same way i have too miniature dachshunds and anytime you know there's a light and breeze outside it sets them off <laughs> Oh, it's, you know, it's like the, you know, the UPS driver pulls in the driveway and they go ape shit. And it's mm-hmm. like, look, you see him every other day. You see him more often than you see me. <laughs> like, why is this a, you know, but so we have a, we have a, we've always had German Shepherd. So right now I've got one Shepherd and one, um, and one retriever, uh, black mouth cur mix. Yeah. So the, so the, so the, um, so the, the Shepherd is the older one. The Shepherd's like, like three and a half and the, and the, and the mixed breed is, is, um, like nine months. So he's still, he's still learning, but unfortunately he's learning from her and she's the high strung one that goes ape shit when anybody pulls in. So Mm -hmm. he's, he's not getting the best lessons from her, shall we say? Um, all right. I think they're, I think they're starting to calm down. So, um, so you can, uh, you can follow me online on Twitter. It's just at Ron Mars. Uh, that's where I am for the most part. Uh, there's also a Ron Mars, uh, Facebook fan page. 
but gun to my head, I probably couldn't find it. Um, uh, some very kind people maintain that for me. Uh, so I am on Facebook, but um, and stuff on Facebook eventually gets to me, but um, it takes a little longer. Twitter's a lot more immediate. And um, as far as Harkins Raiders, the, the Kickstarter um, is up. It's running until December 21st, I think is the last day. Um, so it's the Harkins Raiders graphic novel. It's uh, the Art of Daryl Banks uh, hardcover sketchbook, which is, I think, 112 pages. And then we've got, you know, original art rewards. You can get uh, you can get commissions from Daryl as part of the Kickstarter. Um, and and frankly, Daryl doesn't charge anywhere near enough for his commissions. So it's it's kind of a pretty great bargain. Um, and we've got military patches and challenge coins and other tchotchkes as part of the uh, as part of the campaign as well. Um, so you can, uh, I'm, I'm sure, wink, wink, uh, we'll, we'll pop the, uh, the Harkins Raiders address onto this episode. Um, but you can just go to Kickstarter and search, uh, Harkins Raiders, H-A-R-K-E-N apostrophe S Raiders or my name or Daryl Banks's name. And it should, should lead you there. That's excellent. And, and we will definitely link to, uh, the Kickstarter from the, uh, episode online. Ron, thank you uh, so much for uh, coming on the show. No problem, guys. I'm happy to do it. It was a pleasure. Really appreciate it. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes and the ability to promote your work on our site, and two dollars gets you a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Finally, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. WMQA!